be great if you had the passage open before you that we read a moment ago, 1 Corinthians 6, the, the second part of that chapter, beginning at verse 12. It's a topic we probably don't think about all that much, uh, and one that we'll certainly want to apply a little bit wider. Uh, And some of what Paul says here isn't immediately obvious uh, in terms of its meaning, so please do have it open uh, as we look at it together just now. Father, we pray that as we come and open your written word, that you would come by your Spirit and speak to us through it. Help us to to understand it, to see what your servant Paul uh, said here under your your guidance. And help us too to see how this is important for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some people, simply their name is enough to to frighten you or to intimidate you. Um, there's a guy uh, I was reading about just in the past week, General Lord Richard Dennett. Um, he delivered an annual lecture to the public theology think tank Theos, and he's the former chief of the general staff. And he observed in his lecture that the British armed forces could no longer presume that new recruits would have absorbed an understanding of the core values and standards of behavior required by the military from their family or from the wider community. And the implication for him is that the army needs to teach its own values and standards of behavior if it expects its recruits to understand them. Paul understood very well that the new recruits of the church in Corinth hadn't yet absorbed the core values and the standards of behavior of the Christian church, the church of Jesus Christ. There was little in their pagan family life or in the public life of an immoral city that prepared them for life in the family of God. There was little to help them absorb these values and these standards. And so Paul, at this part of his letter, is setting out what these values and what these standards are. Since the the opening verses of chapter 5, he's been articulating standards of behavior appropriate to God's holy people, those who are going to be a temple for the presence of God's Spirit in Corinth. So in chapter 5, we learned that God's people are not to tolerate those who openly practice gross sexual immorality, but they're to expel them from their community. Last week we learned in the opening part of verse 6 that God's people aren't to drag each other through the law courts, the public courts, but they're to learn to resolve their disputes among themselves. And here in the the final verses of chapter 6, Paul turns his attention to another area where believers in Corinth uh, were failing to live out their identity as people of God. Apparently, some men in Corinth were going to to prostitutes. Some Christian men were going to prostitutes, and they were arguing for the right to do that. We're spirit people. They were saying, we live on a higher plane. In the realm of the spirit, we're unaffected by, by our behavior, by the actions of our body. There's no problem 
with going to prostitutes. It's all okay. I don't think you'll be surprised to find that Paul doesn't agree and that he takes them to task. So he takes a few verses here to explain why that is not okay. And I'm going to summarize what Paul says under three uh, different but related points. First of all, he says the body does matter, despite what you're saying. Second, engaging a prostitute amounts to disengagement from God. And third, the believer's body belongs to God. We're going to take those, if we could take those three points to heart, they'll help us to stand about, stand against sexual immorality in general. Uh, that's so prevalent in our culture. So let's notice first the thing that says, Paul says in verses 12 to 14. He begins by asking these, these Corinthians to have another look at how they're living out their Christian freedom. There seems to be a slogan going around the church in Corinth, and that's why in the NIV they, they put the, the, the punctuation marks around it to indicate that it's direct speech. There's none of that in the Greek so the translators have to try and guess which parts here are, are some sort of quotations. But, but most people are agreed that the phrase, everything is permissible for me, was a, a slogan going around the church in Corinth at the time. Now you've got to know Paul to know that he would agree with that, generally, in principle. Paul's the first person to recognize the sheer scale of freedom that we have when we encounter Jesus Christ. Do you remember what he says towards the end of chapter 3? He encourages the guys in Corinth not to be slaves to, to any particular Christian teacher because all things are yours, he says. All are yours and you're of Christ and Christ is of God. So Christians are brought into a life of freedom that they could previously hardly have imagined. But notice that for Paul, a Christian's freedom is in Christ. We've been set free from a slavery to sin so that we might live for God's glory. And again, Paul quotes the, the Corinthian slogan. He says, everything's permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything's permissible for me, yes, but I won't be mastered by anything. Freedom in Christ, Paul says, yes, absolutely. But not to engage in destructive practices or to enter into new forms of slavery. In verses 13 to 14, Paul challenges the notion that the body doesn't matter. And you might think he's all over the place here when we first read this, the stuff about the food and the stomach, sexual immorality, the body, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But, but there's, a, there's a flow here. There, there's a tight argument being presented. In verse 13, he's again quoting the Corinthians because they're saying, food's for the stomach and the stomach's for food. And actually, I think the quotation should go on. Do you see in the NIV, the quotation stops there? The quotation, I think, should also include God is going to destroy them both in the end. This is what they're saying in Corinth. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God's going to destroy them both. Food's not important, the stomach's not important because God's going to destroy them both in the end. And the logic goes on like this. 
Since all bodily appetites are much the same, the body is for sex and sex is for the body and God's going to destroy them both too. So they don't matter either. Paul challenges them. He says they're wrong in two counts. First in verse 13. While God's made the human body to enjoy the gift of sex, the body is most definitely not for sexual immorality. And the second point, the Christian's body isn't destined for destruction. He says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. The same God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will raise all who are in Christ. We have an eternal future. An eternal physical future. What we do with our bodies matters. Paul's challenging here this uh, Corinthian view of spirituality that sees salvation as something that takes you out of the physical into a spiritual realm. It's actually understandable in some ways that the Corinthians would have this as their default position because that is the Greek worldview of their day. The world's essentially dualistic. It's made up of the material and the spiritual. And the only thing that really matters is the spiritual. That is the the Greek view of the world. Paul challenges them and he calls them back to the the Jewish but then also the, the Christian understanding. God's work of creation and his work of redemption includes the whole person. Body included. Body every bit as much as spirit. Friends, Greek dualism is very much alive and well in the church today. We still hear people talking about saving souls. And we think it sounds very pious and godly. Saving souls as though God were only interested in some part of us that doesn't include our bodies. We still hear people talking about inviting Jesus into your heart as though there was some part of you that that God would come and inhabit and leave the rest of you unchanged and untransformed. It seems to me likely that this kind of theology, although it sounds very pious, could actually encourage you to end up in a place something like the church in Corinth a place where we claim to be close close to God in our heart or our spirit, but pay little regard for our bodies and sinful behavior that we might be engaged in. The body matters. The body matters because the whole of life matters. God has made us to be whole people. And in Jesus Christ, he's redeemed the whole of us. Let's strive then to live holy lives in our bodies. Paul's first point then is that the body matters. His second point, much more briefly, he says, engaging a prostitute amounts to disengagement from God. 
He asks the believers in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members with Christ himself? And in verse 17, he elaborates on this union with Christ. He says, He who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Later on in this letter and elsewhere, Paul talks about Christians being members of the body of Christ in a way where he's talking about the body as the whole church. This is a wee bit different. He's talking about how each one of us is is closely related to Christ. We're members of the body of Christ. And it's because we're joined to, to Jesus in this way, it's unthinkable that we should take away our connection with Jesus Christ and instead make a connection with a prostitute. And he reminds us here of the teaching uh, of Genesis 2, that when two people have sex, they become one flesh. They connect at a level deeper than any other connection known to human beings. So to have sex with a prostitute means just that. It means to become one with her. So it's not that sex is incompatible with being joined to Jesus. We'll see that more clearly in chapter 7. It's that sex with a prostitute is incompatible with union with Jesus. Paul's point is that the physical joining of a believer with a prostitute is not possible. The believer's body already belongs to the Lord and through his resurrection we've become members with him by his spirit. So far we've learned this morning that the body does matter, that engaging a prostitute amounts to disengagement from God. And now finally, we see in Paul's teaching that the believer's body belongs to God. As we come to the end of the passage today, we see a pattern recurring that we we saw last week as well. Last week, if you remember, Paul told the Corinthians at length how they ought to behave. And then in the end, he reminded them who they are. Last week he said, don't drag each other through the courts. Remember who you are. You're washed, sanctified, and justified people of God. And this morning, the same pattern holds true. Don't go to prostitutes. And now he reminds them who they are. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit lives in you. You're precious to God. He's paid a huge price for you. Already in our series, we have thought about what it means to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. What Paul said to the community in Corinth, he now applies to the individual the individual Christian's body. We're to be the place where God's Spirit dwells. The church and the individual Christian are the place where heaven and earth collide. There's no room here for sexual immorality. Not when we understand ourselves this way. 
We've thought about that before, but I thought we'd take a last few moments this morning thinking about another thing that Paul tells us about our identity. He says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Paul changes his image, moves from the the architecture of the, the temple in Corinth, and he takes us to the slave market of the Roman world. It's an image that he he uses and that's used other times in the New Testament. Usually the image of a a slave being redeemed, it's used to describe the effects of the gospel to free us. We were slaves of another. We're redeemed that we might be free. But here there's a slightly different emphasis. Paul emphasizes now that the Christians entered into a new slavery. Since God's paid a great, great price for us, we're slaves to God and ready to do his will. What was the price that was paid for us? What price did God pay to make us his? I'm sure you can already guess. John makes it clear for us as part of his revelation, chapter 5. He talks about worship being offered around the throne of the Lamb of God. He pictures 24 elders, four creatures bowing before the throne, and they say, you are worthy because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God. With your blood you purchased men for God. He's talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. The place where Jesus, the Lamb of God, bought us at a cost no less than everything. The cost of his own life. And Paul says to the Christians in Corinth, you think your behavior doesn't matter? You forget the cross. You forget the cost, the price that God has paid that you might be his. That he might free you and bring you into his family and his service. We talked last week about the importance of knowing our true identity as the basis for for godly behavior. The only way we'll live the life that God calls us to is not by reading lists of rules and and trying against ourselves to keep them. It's about knowing who we are, understanding our full and our true identity. I wonder, are we beginning to get the picture? We belong to God because God the Father created us. We're His pride and joy. Long before time began, he had you on his mind. You belong to him. We belong to to God because Jesus, the Son, has saved us. He died so that we might live and be set free and live differently. 
And we belong to God since God, the Holy Spirit, indwells us. By his presence in us, he he marks us as his own. He confirms, yes, this woman, this man is mine. Therefore, says Paul, since all this is true, since this is your identity, honor God with your body. I want to conclude this morning by thinking about how we might do that, how we might honor God with our bodies. We may not be going to prostitutes. If we are, we should certainly stop. But are we engaged in another form of sexual relationship that needs to stop? Have we allowed a friendship somewhere to cross a line to an inappropriate level of physical intimacy? Are we letting our thought lives roam into to sexual or romantic fantasies? Are we feeding them with unhelpful books or films? Statistically, I am assuming that people in this congregation, and not just one or two, are, are struggling or have struggled with pornography. Do we find ourselves drawn back repeatedly to sexually explicit internet sites? Whatever our temptation, we must take decisive steps to counter that. Don't negotiate with temptation. Look at what Paul says in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Run. For me, it's a a New Testament reminder of that Old Testament story of, of Joseph where Potiphar's wife was seducing him to her bed and, and in the end he had no choice but to run. We've got to be willing to run. And I, I can't help but think the internet's going to be a big part of this for, for my generation and those after. There was a time when you had to go to a certain kind of shop and risk the embarrassment of asking for a certain kind of magazine. Not anymore. Two clicks away on the mouse. There was a time when keeping your desktop computer on a in a public room in the house could deal with most of these issues because there was an accountability of of making sure your time online was was there for others to see. Not anymore. Not with our mobile devices. Maybe now if you're in trouble in this area, now's the time to explore some of the softwares that allows a a friend to become an accountability partner with you. They get access, they get a, a record of all the websites that you've visited. They get to see what you see. Folks, whatever it is and however costly the step is, 
run from this kind of sin. At the end, I love what Paul does in these passages. I said it a few weeks ago. He never minimizes sin. He engages it fully and robustly. But in the end, there's always something more to be said about God and his working with us. And this morning, if you're struggling with with sexual sin, I I don't want to stand at the front here and, and hit you over the head and make life harder for you. But I do want to tell you this. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. And for that reason, honor God with your body. Let's pray.